As you're taking your seats, if you would, open your copy of God's Word to the 35th chapter of Isaiah, Isaiah 35. And as you're turning there, just a brief mention to sort of realize where we're at in this particular Isaiah and the flow of, of these two chapters, really 34 and 35, and what comes next. Last week, Matt preached Isaiah 34, which was a passage of intense judgment, warning, doom, you could say. There is a complete uh, complement, but also contrast in this chapter. You'll see a stark difference. And then in Isaiah 36, it turns to historical narrative. So you have Isaiah 34 and 35 as sort of a culminating point in this part of Isaiah where his vision is complete with these two complements of judgment and salvation in the highest sense of the, of the word. And then it's as if someone wakes up from a dream and they're there in the present moment and Assyria is invading Israel. That's what comes in 36. So that's just to give you an idea of where we're at in the flow and why these two chapters are so culminating in their sense, because it'll end for a brief while as it turns to the present again in Isaiah's day in Isaiah 36. So without any further introduction, let's read. Hear now God's holy and errant and inspired word from Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then, the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Thus far, God's holy word. Let's pray. Our God, as we come to your word, we do ask that you would add your blessing to it. We need your spirit to understand. Lord, now with the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when Precious, my wife, when her family was stationed in March Air Force Base uh, years ago, her dad took her to Disneyland over 100 times. Um, Disneyland and Knott's Berry Farm, as I recall. So what happens whenever you're going on a vacation of some kind? Well, in April, at the end of April, the Strader and uh, 
some of Precious's family, some of the Wu family, will be going on a sort of commemorative trip to Disneyland. What do you do? You plan with an itinerary. And Precious is the queen of itineraries. You have to know where you're going, what it's going to be like when you get there, how to get there. Those are the things that go into planning and anticipating where you're going to be. And the reason I bring that up is because we see a sort of itinerary here in Isaiah 35, where we're going to be, what it's going to be like, how people get there. But this itinerary is, is not exactly like the Disneyland itinerary. I mean, I'm, I'm sure as magical as it will be, my feet are going to hurt. My wallet's going to hurt worse. And as, as much of a model citizen as Leaf is at two and a half, uh, we're going to get frustrated with him and he's going to get frustrated with us. But as you read through this passage, what were some of the words that you could think of that went through your mind? Peaceful lush, perfect, I would say Edenic or Eden-like. And that's what I want you to see as we walk through this passage today is that God brings his people back to a new Eden through Jesus Christ. God brings his people back to a new Eden through Jesus Christ. And the reason I want you to understand that, the reason why it's important is because I want you and God wants you to look forward to this. He wants you to look forward to this itinerary. Even though this is a poetic understatement of Isaiah, there is a trajectory to the new Eden here. And so we see that first as God rejuvenates a desolate place. Look in the first couple verses. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly. That double repetition of blossoming. The crocus, I had to look this up. I don't know what a crocus is. It's a beautiful flower. It's a beautiful flower that can be purple or orange or white. And when it, think about that bright fuchsia bloom and how that would contrast with the brown desert sand. It is blooming. It's given the characteristic of the glory of Lebanon, Carmel, and Sharon. The only thing you really need to understand is these are places that were known for their lushness, their beauty, their abundance. And what God is saying is that the place in which he's talking about is going to blossom and be beautiful and abundant like this. Reeds and rushes, if you look in verses uh, 6, Latter half of verse six, waters break forth in the wilderness, burning sand becomes like a pool. Or at the end of verse seven, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. This short grass, the short terrible brown grass that we have out here. Imagine blossoming, booming up like the edge of a pond with green, long, tall grass, green reeds that you can see an image that belongs in the deep south where it's moist all the time and everything is growing and growing and growing all the time. Well, why, is it, why does this happen? Because water is there. Water has come into the wilderness. The latter half of verse six, waters break forth, streams in the desert. There's four things in, six, in, in just six and a half to verse seven, four things, uh, four times are things described as going from dry to wet. In the wilderness, there's water. In the desert, now there's streams. 
Where there was a burning sand, now there's a pool. Where there was thirsty ground, now there's springs of water. And Isaiah uses this to personify the land. The land is singing. The desert, desert's not a person, right? But look in verse one. The desert shall rejoice. Verse two, rejoice with joy and singing. It's as if Isaiah is saying, the land is going to be singing out the hallelujah chorus. It's, all, it's here. God is restoring this. And as I thought about the land being personified and how much water imagery is here of giving relief to the land, I thought about the feeling that you and I have all had whenever you've done something physically intense, whatever it is, whether it's working out, whether it's uh, some work that you've been doing and you are parched. It's, it's easy to get parched here, right, with how dry it is. It's dry here already. You are thirsty, and you just guzzle that water. It's the perfect temperature. It's not too cold so that you have to stop. You can just keep chugging it. And what happens when you're done? Ah, that's what the land feels like. Don't we feel that here? And that's what I want you to realize. Whenever you reach this place, you will feel refreshed. You will feel relief like the land, just like that intense feeling after drinking water. Now, Isaiah, if you remember, has pointed to uh, or has used language like this before in Isaiah 29. Actually, whenever I preached Isaiah 29, Isaiah used some of the same language about the wilderness springing forth, about even the deaf hearing. And in that passage, I emphasize the fact that Isaiah is looking forward to Christ and how the word is going to come and water the dry land, water the dry ears that are there. That's no doubt in Isaiah's view here, but this goes beyond that. This goes to the new Eden. And so whenever we're reading the prophets, just as a general, call it principle, when you're reading the prophets, when we're looking at a passage like this in Isaiah, think of it as light shining toward a prism. Any of you little kids experiment with a prism in school? What happens when you use a prism? The light shines forward at it, and when the light hits the prism, it refracts, and you can then see all the colors of the spectrum, and the light continues beyond the prism in its refracted expansion. And so as the prophets are shining the light toward Jesus, when it hits the prism of Jesus, hits the prism of the New Testament, it goes beyond it and it becomes even more expansive and we can see even more of it. And that is something like what is happening with this. Isaiah is shining at Christ. There is a fulfillment of this in him, but it shines beyond him and it's more expansive as it goes toward the end of the age in the new Eden, whenever the whole creation is restored. This made me think of Romans 8. The whole creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. And not only the creation, but we ourselves groan inwardly. And so there, even in Romans 8, Paul picks up on the marrying together of us and the creation, that the creation is groaning for restoration. And we likewise groan along with it, even though it's not a person, we're groaning like it. And so as 
the creation groans as we see it looking forward to relief and refreshment. I want you to number one, realize that when we get here, we will be refreshed, as I said. But number two, this is what we should be thirsty for. What are we thirsting and hungering for? How often do our eyes fall so short of that future to, to the here and now, and we forget, we forget the consummation of the kingdom. And I would dare say, we're tempted to become dissatisfied with the new Eden. We want satisfaction on our terms now. Yeah, sure, the creation's gonna be restored, it's gonna be great, but I really need more money now. I really need to have peace and anxiety relief now. And as I thought about that, I mean, I thought about myself. I mean, even I, as a pastor, I'm frustrated with something every day. Never someone, just something. I'm frustrated with, with things every day. But I think that the greater we become satisfied with the guaranteed future, the more content we can become in the present. Now, I'm not saying that's easy. We're gonna struggle every day, but I think the more satisfied that we can be with this guaranteed future, the more content we'll be in the present. Well, God has a place that he is preparing, that he's going to bring his people to, this lush, restored place, and he brings them there. God goes to rescue his people. Look in verses three to six in the first part of six. First thing that you see is actually God gives the effect of the rescue first. Because God is, or the effect of his coming, because God is coming for you, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come. Physically, Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, emotionally, mentally, spiritually. Say to those who are in fear and who are anxious, be strong and fear not. Isaiah just doesn't want you to think things here. Isaiah, God, wants you to feel something. Yes, I'm Presbyterian and I said we should feel something. We should feel this, not just know it. We should feel anxiety relief. We should feel fear melt away because God is coming. Now, whenever someone in the New Testament quotes something from the Old Testament, we should always pay close attention. Now, uh, the author to Hebrews quotes this section, make strengthen, excuse me, make uh, strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees, and He's using it in the context of encouraging people in hardship and in affliction. The author of the Hebrews is saying, God is treating you like sons. And anybody who has a son whom they love, they discipline. God is treating you as sons in your hardship, in your discipline. And so strengthen the hands, make firm the feeble needs. That's the context in which the author of the Hebrews uh, makes this application. And so there is a sense in which we should understand that in our hardships and in our affliction, we can be strengthened because God is treating us as sons. But I would say that that is actually 
a secondary aspect of application in its, in its place here. And I would just say primarily, primarily, God wants you to feel comfort because relief is coming. Relief is coming. And in particular, all those anxieties you feel, all those worries you feel, they will melt away. In particular, what's in view here? Rescue from enemies. He will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Now, as I read through that, there is an aspect here of judgment, right? There's, this is, is, if you will, a, a, a little echo from Isaiah 34, that there is a salvation coming from God, and it also involves judgment upon God's enemies. The word recompense is used here, uh, repayment for something that has been done wrong. And as I read that, I thought about the modern issue, the modern, pro- the modern problem, maybe it's not a modern problem, the problem people have always had with the recompense of God and the seeming unfairness of it. How come God's recompense, God's repayment is so over the top? I mean, come on, eternal death and hell, that's his recompense? And I was reminded of a clip from the American Gospel. American Gospel is a, a piece of cinema that's been done. It's, it's two parts, I highly recommend it. But anyway, at one point in American Gospel, they're dealing with this idea of God's judgment and his recompense and his restitution. And the illustration that was used was, was stuck with me. And I can't even remember who was speaking, but he was basically saying, look, if you go into a junkyard and you scratch a car, who cares? It's a junkyard. There's no value in the thing that has been injured or marred or offended. Now, what if you scratch a 1966 Shelby GT? I mean, that thing went for $5.1 million at auction, just FYI. Now you have committed a serious offense and the recompense that you owe is so much greater. Now that is a finite example We have marred, we have injured, we have scratched, if you will, more than that, the character of God. This is why his recompense is what it is, because of the thing that is valuable. I mean, a car, I'll give it to Shelby, but it's sheet metal and paint, right? It has perceived value because of our perception of it. God has actual, long-lasting value that does not vary with perception. That is the recompense of God. But the emphasis here, I wanted to digress into that to make a point about the restitution that God is bringing. But the emphasis in Isaiah, you could call it an echo from 34 in judgment, but his emphasis is what? Is comfort. Anybody who got you is gonna get God. God is coming to rescue you from your enemies, whoever they are, whatever they are, he's coming for you. Now this rescue, it involves full bodily restoration. 
Look in verse five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And whenever I read this, again, my first, my first thought sort of ended at Christ. I looked at it and I was like, ah, Isaiah again is pointing toward the miracles of Christ. And, and you know, that's sort of not where I ended, but that's where I landed at least for a moment. And then uh, Derek Thomas in his commentary reminded me, this is cosmic. This is whole. That there is a full bodily. It was, uh, it was, it was Mottier, Alec Mottier, who said, all of the major inputs, the major inputs are represented eyes and ears. The major outputs are represented. Action, leaping, voice. This is looking forward in a subtle way to Christ, but it is going like that prism. It is going beyond Christ to a full bodily restoration. Now, as I mentioned in the comparison between the creation and us in Romans 8, as Paul says, the creation groans, we groan. Part of Paul's application there is this, what, this thing that we're hoping for, this full bodily restoration, we hope for what we do not see and we wait for it with patience. There, there is a call, again, I w- I'm going from secondary to primary here. Secondarily, I would say there is a call for us to be patient as we wait for this restoration. But again, I think the primary thrust of what Isaiah wants people to feel here even though secondarily, oh, this requires me to be patient, but primarily, God wants you to know that you will not just be refreshed and relieved when you reach New Eden, you will be restored fully. Now, oftentimes, especially because we read words like blind, deaf, leap, sing, we think physically. We think, ah, I'll finally be over this terminal illness. I'll finally get rid of this you know, hitching my stride. My cracked ribs will finally be healed for good. They won't ever break again. But realize this, our full restoration goes beyond our body. And I would dare say, not dare say, I would say, it goes deeper to the more important elements of our restoration. Our full restoration is not just our body. Your addictions will finally be defeated your struggle with unrighteous anger, the ways in which you are greedy and discontent will finally be over. That is the full restoration that this is looking toward, body and soul. Fill in the blank with your sin. At this day, when we reach this point in the itinerary, it will finally be done. Because what is the nature of those people who are coming to this place? Well, look in verse 8. And a highway shall be there. This is a description of God making, providing the highway to Eden. What is the nature of those who are there? And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. And this idea of there being a way is thematic in Isaiah and it's thematic in the New Testament. The way is described in 
uh, different parts of Isaiah, Isaiah 11, 40, 63, prepare the way of the Lord. This is what John the Baptist is quoting in the New Testament, prepare the way. And then Luke picks up on this theme as, what are the first Christians called? Followers of the way. That's repeated multiple times. Priscilla and Aquila teach Apollos more accurately the way of God. There is a way, and this way is described here as the way of holiness. So, the million-dollar question today is, how do I get on this highway? How do I get to be holy? How do I walk on this way? So what does it take for me to be on the way of holiness and not one who is unclean, who shall not pass over it? The Old Testament and the New Testament answer this question. You need holiness from outside yourself. You need someone else's holiness to be reckoned to you so you are considered righteous, so you are considered the appropriate one to to walk on the way. Paul lasers in on this in Romans 4. It's in the New Testament, but he uses the Old Testament example of Abraham. Abraham believed God and what? It was credited to him as righteousness. And then Paul goes on to say, that of the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. To be on the way of holiness, it requires faith in Christ. And through that faith in Christ, your sins are imputed, reckoned, accounted, placed upon, all of those synonyms. Your sins are put upon Christ and his holiness His righteousness is placed upon you. That is what puts you on the way of holiness. Of course, as I read about the highway of holiness, like any good Presbyterian pastor, I thought about Led Zeppelin and the stairway to heaven. So Shakespeare has this, he didn't coin the idea, but he coined this phrase, All that glitters is not gold. And what Shakespeare is communicating is that things that are of value are not necessarily gold. Everything that is valuable, everything that glitters is not gold. Well, Led Zeppelin riffs off that, and the first line of their their song, Stairway to Heaven, is there's a woman who's sure all that glitters is gold. Gold is all that's worth it, and she's buying a stairway to heaven. The idea that through money, through giving of it, I would just say earning and doing, through earning and doing, you can buy a stairway to heaven. The idea that you can buy, the idea that you can merit heaven is completely counter to everything in the scriptures. You look, backtrack to Romans 3. Paul says you have to have a righteousness outside yourself in Romans 4 because in Romans 3, he's made it clear, you got none in and of yourself. There is no one righteous, no, not one. Then he goes into Romans 4, you need an alien righteousness. You need a foreign righteousness. You need a way of holiness that's not within you. 
thinking of highways and stairways. This theme, again, I thought of Jacob's ladder. You remember Jacob's ladder in Genesis 28? Jacob is at a particular place in Genesis 28. He dreams and behold, in this vision, in this dream Jacob has, behold, there was a ladder set upon the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Continues later on, Jacob concludes and says, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. This is the place where heaven and earth meet. And this is the ladder. This is the stairway. This is the highway on which things traverse to get from here to there. Now, what does Jesus say in John 1? After he has just called some initial disciples, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Another drop the mic moment for Jesus. As their brains go back to Jacob's ladder, the place where heaven and earth meet, the way to get from here to there, the way of holiness, Jesus is saying it's not a road, it's a person. I am the way of holiness. What does he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He is the highway. He is the stairway. It is not your holiness. It is Christ's holiness. Now, there is an implication for our lives here that Christians' lives are characterized by holy living, by a continuing life of repentance. What was, Isaac, excuse me, not Isaac, what was Martin Luther's first of the 95 Theses? When our Lord Jesus said, repent, he meant that the Christian's whole life is to be one of repentance, that there is a characteristic continuing lifestyle of holiness and repentance. But remember and recognize here that the grounds of our justification, the grounds of our standing before God is Christ's holiness. He is the highway. He is the stairway. He is the way. Now, this way is plain and clear. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. So one, I want you to recognize, you know, it is plain, it is clear, it is simple. But the other thing I want us to take away from this, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray, is that God looks out for screw-ups like us. So often, don't you feel like you've fallen off the road? You've lost the way. You've fallen into the ditch. God is the one who picks us back up, keeps us on the highway, who is guarding us for salvation yet to be revealed. He keeps us on the way of holiness. He looks out for screw-ups like us. Well, this way is also protected, isn't it? Verse 9 no lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. There will be no threat to you at all. Think of all the different things that... <laughs> Only here in Colorado are some of you perhaps threatened by an animal. <laughs> Mountain lions, bears, whatever they are. But for the most part, even living here in Colorado, you're not threatened by animals. For the most part. But think of what it is that threatens you. 
What is it that makes you feel uneasy? What is it makes you feel, what is it that makes you feel like you're gonna lose it? That threat will never be there. Now there's a simultaneous, we probably need to let go of our sinful anxiety about whatever we're holding on to, but also realize that the threat will be taken away. It won't be there. Feel like this place is going to be refreshing. Feel that you, and know you will be restored. You will be safe. This is where you're going. Now, what happens whenever you go on an amazing trip? When you go on an amazing vacation and someone asks you, how was it? And this happens to me every time that someone asks Precious and I about our experience when we were stationed in Germany. Like, oh, what was it like? It's like, oh man, it's amazing. If you can ever get stationed there, you gotta go. The, the, the things that you can see, the things that we did, it's, it's because this place is so great and so fun and so awesome, you've gotta go there. That's what should overflow out of us with regard to this. This itinerary is so awesome I don't want you just to feel like, oh yes, I will be comforted. I will be restored. This should flow over out of you to go to somebody else and say, this place is great. You've got to go here. You've got to meet this God. Now, practically speaking in our church, there's a couple of different ways in which, you know, this is even taking place potentially right now. Encouraging cadet sponsorship. Cadet sponsorship is not necessarily for everybody. But for those who it is for, that is a rotating mission field of non-Christians who need to know, who need to have exposure to a Christian who really is excited and believes this. For non-Christian cadets or even Christian cadets who need to realize this is the real show, not the air show. (laughs) I mean, all right, flying is great. Being in the Air Force is great. Being in the military is great but there's more to it. It's, it goes beyond this. We're talking cosmic, Edenic characteristics here. This is what they need. That side of the road, on that side of the road, we have Discovery Canyon, um, the school over there. What if we brought breakfast to the faculty and staff on occasion to open a relationship so that they would be brought to a point of having a relationship with a Christian in some way, maybe even not us. Maybe, maybe we give an example simply of Christian behavior and they are in a relationship with another Christian in their neighborhood and they ask, you know, I've seen you Christians do these things. Why is everything so screwed up? And you or someone else says, well, let me tell you why everything's screwed up, but let me tell you about how God is taking everything that's screwed up and taking us back to a new Eden through Jesus Christ. A couple of opportunities that we have. I've said it from the pulpit now, I'm committed. Otherwise, I'm under the bus. <clears throat> this place, this place that you're going is gonna be far better than you can imagine. This is, again, as I said, a poetic understatement from Isaiah of the nature of this place. It's beautiful, but the reality 
goes far beyond the literal words that we have here on the page. I hope we've seen that through this. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Imagine yourself as living in a house. God comes to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that these jobs needed doing and you're not surprised. God's fixing up this house. But then presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It doesn't seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. I would expand on Lewis here and say he is enlarging the borders of the house, expanding the property, going beyond, planting new fields, enlarging the borders, taking the unfruitful pieces of land and making it fruitful. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. It's not just what the place is like and what we will be like, but because of who will dwell there with us. He intends to come and dwell in it himself. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for this promise. We look forward to this day as we see the new Eden in a poetic understatement. But we ask, Lord, that as we still wrestle, as we still struggle here on earth, that you would give us the patience, that you would give us the endurance. And Lord, primarily we ask for the comfort, for the assurance, for the anxiety relief, for the strength in our hands and our feeble knees that you say we can have because you are coming for your people. We pray in Jesus' name, the highway, the way. Amen.